It's the kind of uh, uh, recession that is deep, uh, that appears to be long, and uh, the only way we're going to get the country moving again is a partnership between the states and the federal government. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Today is Monday, February 2nd. That was Vermont Governor Jim Douglas you just heard at the top of the podcast. He was meeting with President Obama today to discuss the stimulus plan. And in a, in a few minutes, we're going to talk about a financial crisis that began with the popping of a huge housing bubble and led to a stock market plunge and then a banking crisis. You're setting me up, aren't you? I am setting you up because I, I was it. not talking about the U.S. situation. I was talking about Japan. No way, Japan. In the 80s and 90s. A lot of people say it more than the Great Depression or the stagflation in the 1970s and 1980s that Japan's lost decade of the 1990s is the crisis that most resembles what we're going through today. So you're going to talk to an expert on Japan's lost decade about whether or not we've learned anything from the mistakes that uh, the Japanese government made. Uh, but first, our planet money indicator. Today's uh, indicator, Alex, is 0.5%. 0.5%. That is? That is the amount that the stimulus bill that just passed the House, the $819 billion stimulus bill, that's how much it calls for the various government agencies that will receive money to spend on management and oversight. In other words, 0.5% of the amount appropriated of the $819 billion will be spent on auditors and inspectors general and, you know, the, the people who will make sure this is not corrupt, that the money is not being used badly or corruptly. So 0.5%, is that is that good? Is that a lot? Is that a little? It's a little. It's not enough. So, um, so on, a, on a first pass through the bill... This is initial reporting here. It seems like the bill does not call for enough money. As, as one guy who's a very prominent um, auditor, although he told me I couldn't say who he was, which is so annoying. These audit people are the most untransparent people. They're <laughs> the people so who are supposed weird. to bring transparency. I can't get any of them to talk on, on the, the record. record. It's really so, annoying. So one so, shadowy auditor told so you one off sh- the record. <laughs> told me off the record that for many government programs, 1% to 2% would be a more appropriate amount just for the auditing portion and the 0.5% governs auditing and management oversight. Um, of course, as an auditor, he is trying to get more auditing money, probably. I don't know. He's an older guy. I think he's doing fine. But okay. <laughs> um, but the bill does call in other ways for specific auditing funds above the 0.5% and says that the 0.5% doesn't always apply. So so we're we're not sure yet, is, is my answer. We don't yet know. It seems on a first approximation that possibly, possibly, This bill does not provide the kind of oversight you'd want to see with a massive increase in government spending to make sure it's not spent corruptly. But we could be totally wrong about that. Right. Um, Okay. And we'll be bringing you more on that down the road. But for now, there's this phrase that we keep hearing, uh, the lost decade, Japan's lost decade. Um, And this was the period of time in Japan, uh, economists usually say it was from 1990 to 2002 about, when Japan, which was really doing well and thriving, just sort of fell down and couldn't get up. We've been hearing this so much and we want to just say, all right, what is this thing? We just want to spell it out. When people say Japan's lost decade, what was it? What was so bad about it? 
Can we learn things about it? So to get to the bottom of that, I, I asked some people, who, who's the best person to ask about this? And several people said Adam Posen from the Peterson Institute for International Economics. He studied Japan intensely in the 90s and still does. He's written several books on it, including one called, appropriately, The Japanese Financial Crisis and Its Parallels with the U.S. Experience. <laughs> that sort of the interview sort of conducts itself, doesn't it? Yes. You would just asked him <laughs> right. to read the title of his book, actually. No. <laughs> right. All right. Um, so he told me that until we got ourselves into this mess, Japan was the place that was most fascinating for economists like him. Before we had the most recent bubble here, that was the famous bubble in financial circles of the recent decades. So in Japan in the 80s, particularly from 1985 onward, their real estate shot up just as much as our real estate did, but not just housing, also their stock market, commercial real estate. There are stories about people going out for ice cream in Tokyo in 1989 and having gold leaf scattered on their ice cream. You know, Every reporter and every financial jockey wanted to be assigned to Tokyo because the living was very good. And you had Japanese companies and banks buying everything in sight, gambling on real estate, gambling on real estate abroad. So I think it was Mitsubishi. I forget which company exactly bought a huge chain of pubs in England just because they felt like it. You know, it, it was a huge bubble. And then it ended, as bubbles are, tend to do. By definition. Yeah. <laughs> if it doesn't end, it's just sustained growth. Right. And yeah. what's interesting is it ended in part because there was a regulatory tightening. The Ministry of Finance, the authorities in Japan said, well, people are being irresponsible with their lending. Let's put some new rules on mortgage lenders, tighten it up. And at that point, the air started to go out of the system. It does sound very similar to the subprime There's a crisis. lot of surface similarities, which is part of the reason people are starting to get spooked by the parallels. So if you're into this sort of thing, you can plot a graph of what's the price increases in average U.S. housing, the kind of thing Robert Schiller or Nario Rubini does, and overlay it with the Japanese lines from 15 years ago, earlier, and they match. Uh, stock market a little less. Our stock market blew up a little less than theirs did, but pretty much the same sort of thing. Okay, so so you've got me a, you've got me a little concerned. So what happens in, in 1990? It, it the housing prices. Start to go down. Start to go down. Stock market goes down very precipitously. And you have a series of drops followed by plateaus, followed by drops, basically from mid-1990 through late 1992. The real estate market, the housing market, the bond market, everything goes down in tandem, which is another one of the parallels that scares us now. Diversification doesn't seem to help. All the assets go down in tandem because you have, a, at its core, a banking system that's selling anything good to get cash in the short term. I say the banks, just like banks here, they're just desperate to stay afloat. So they're, they're selling stuff at fire sale prices just to get cash in the door. Exactly. And as this is what economists call adverse selection, which is what we're seeing now and what we saw then, that a bank will tend to roll over its worst loans because it, does, it wants to hope that they'll actually be repaid someday. And if it writes them off, it gets wiped out, whereas they'll sell off their good assets or close off their, their good loans because there's no upside potential to that and they just need the cash. Gotcha. Um, so, so 90 to 92 is just free fall. We're on a roller coaster going yeah, down. Although there's although some, plateaus. Although there's plateaus and it also, just like here in the US, and this is something that surprised me, I must admit, it took a couple years for it to transmit from the financial sector to the real economy. So growth in Japan actually wasn't that bad in 1990-91, just like growth in the U.S. wasn't that bad in most of 2008. Right. But by 92, you're in a pretty steep recession. And 
it looked like a bad recession and it was going to last roughly till 95. And as things go, again, this is not nice, but it's not unprecedented. If things had ended in 95 and the economy had recovered, we wouldn't be talking about it this way. Okay, so what happens in 95, or what doesn't happen, I guess? Is well, there's a big argument. I'm, of course, on the right side. Um, <laughs> you mean correct it, side, not yes, necessarily yes, conservative. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I'm on the correct side. Thank you for correcting me. <laughs> right. um, the, there are some people who say, once the bubbles burst, it was all over. And so then Japan, because the bubbles burst, it was consigned to the stagnation for 10 years because it was going to take that long for companies and savers to work off the excesses. Okay. So you think this is not true? I think – and research I've done and a lot of other people done I think indicates this is fundamentally wrong because what happened in Japan was things were going to end in 95 in the sense that there was a recovery. But then the government messed up. The Japanese government promised to raise taxes in the early 1997 because they were worried about budget deficits. And they also played very nice-nice with the banks saying, well, we know you got problems now, but maybe if we let you go for a couple of years, we're not going to nationalize you. We're not going to scrutinize you. Maybe you'll rebuild your capital, both of which were huge mistakes. So wait a second. In 95, they said we're going to raise taxes down the road? They made a warning 18 months ahead. So that they were going to raise the consumption tax like a national sales tax, a pretty significant amount. Gotcha. And it directly hit retailers. It directly hit small businesses. And meanwhile, the banks, for the reasons we already discussed, since nobody played tough with them, they just – the government didn't get involved. They just kept rolling over the bad loans. So – OK. So uh, – so, so, and, and let's get to the banks. This is – are, are these what we call zombie banks? They only become zombie banks. They start out as a little bit dazed and then over time they grow into zombies as their brains eat away. Okay. Um, in other words, banks think with their capital. When they have enough capital, they act smart because then they've got something at stake. When banks lose capital and don't have anything personally at stake for the managers, for the shareholders, they act dumb. They gamble. Because, and if I can – let me see if I understand. So if I'm running a bank – and I've got you know ten billion dollars in assets. I can lose that ten billion, and then I might lose my job, or I won't get a bonus, or whatever. So I want to, I want to use that ten billion to make more money, but I don't want to be crazy about it. But if I have nothing but fairy dust and some some ability to borrow money, um, I know I basically don't have a job because I'm running an insolvent bank. So right. I might as well swing for the fences and exactly. see if I can make a fortune. This is what we call gambling on resurrection. So the essentially the message I want to get across is Japan didn't have to turn out to be a lost decade. It could have been bad three years and done. But because the government made – didn't do stimulus, in fact, actually tightened policy and you because mean, actually raised taxes, reduced the amount of government spending in the economy, even were very slow to cut interest rates. And at the same time, the government didn't intervene properly in the banks. The banks just kept making the problem worse. They kept putting money into bad purposes and doing less lending. So if sometime between 92 and 95, the government had gone to the banks and said, you guys are a bunch of morons. We're going to nationalize you right. or we're going to impose really strict rules. Uh, the banks would have suffered a lot in the short term right. potentially, but it wouldn't it would have cleaned right. out the system more quickly. It would have cleaned out the more system and it would have allowed the recovery to work because then you could do fiscal stimulus, you could do monetary easing and it would be self-sustaining. And in fact, that's what Japan demonstrates. It took until 2001 when a new prime minister, 
Koizumi came in and put in place a very heroic economist, strange words, but anyway, named Heizo Takanaka, who came in and did exactly that. They, they pushed a big stimulus package and they got incredibly tough with the banks. And the moment they did that, the economy started to recover. And Japan actually had its longest, not its strongest, but its longest post-war recovery from 2002 through middle of last year. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. It, it, so Even I, given it, the miracle years of the 70s and 80s? Right. Japan. I mean, they didn't grow as fast as in the 70s and 80s, but they did grow sustained without any recession. So I, I want to wrap up with, with the lessons for now. Um, I, I, here, let me guess what your lesson is going to be based sure. on what you've just said. Your lesson is... It's in President Obama's hands and Congress's hands whether this becomes a short-term vicious recession or a long-term far more pernicious stagnation. Is is that what you're going to tell me? Exactly right. The bottom line is policy choices matter. You're going to have a recession anyway, but whether it becomes Japan of the 90s, that great – scary thing we talked about basically depends on whether you make the wrong policy choices. You have to be willing to do stimulus, which they clearly are going to do, and you have to be willing to get tough with the banks, which it's not clear how rapidly they're going to do that. But I'm hopeful that those two legs of the policy will be much better under Obama than it was under the prime ministers in Japan who squandered that decade. And the biggest way to see this lesson is when you got a prime minister who had the right policies, Japan recovered within a year. Do you think we have the right president? I think we've got almost the right policies. I just wish that the Obama administration and the Congress would get aggressive, more aggressive with the banks than they've been. Thank you to Adam Posen of the Peterson Institute for that. Um, now, uh, our colleague David Kessenbaum, I don't know if you know Alex, I can see him through that glass right there. He's you can. In, he's visiting New York. He's waving. He's dancing. <laughs> he's doing the wave. He's doing one-man wave. Excellent. Well, he did a story on Morning Edition, and now he has an update for us. And the story, maybe you heard it, was about two dueling advertising campaigns, both involving pigs, and that's pigs as in piggy banks. The advertising campaigns were in two different countries, Finland and the United States. Uh, the ad campaign in the United States is called Feed the Pig, as in the piggy bank, and it's trying to convince people to save more money. Uh, the ad campaign from Finland is called Don't Feed the Pig, basically. Uh, it urges people not to feed the recession by spending more money. So in other words, it's got this little piggy bank with devils and horns, and the message is saving is bad. You need to spend money to stimulate the economy. Wow. So pigs pigs (laughs) used in opposite ways. (laughs) That's cool. And apparently some people in Finland are not into this campaign. They want more like a U.S. style. A U.S. style, a saving pig, a non-devil horn fanged pig campaign. And so there's this Finnish Facebook group set up to oppose the evil pig campaign. David Kessenbaum, inveterate reporter, went to the bottom of it. He spoke to a member of the group. Actually, just just pronounce your name for me. Okay, so it's Anu Bartanen. Okay, so tell me about the about the face, Facebook group. Um, yeah, so it's called um, Feed the Recession, as opposed to the campaign, which was Don't Feed the Recession. And I basically just noticed it. I was already in New York City, so... Um, I noticed it when all my friends started to join, and I went to check it out, and that's actually how I even heard about the whole campaign. But the group is basically just opposing this whole idea, what the campaign is about, that we should be spending more, and that we should be 
buying things and owning things, and we should be all really worried about not people not buying enough things. So there's a lot of discussion on various um, ideas of how the recession could actually be good for us and good for our lifestyle and good for the environment and so on. How could the recession be good for us? Well, it could be people could maybe start spending less and making um, less stuff and using less resources on earth and um, having maybe more time to hang out with friends. I mean, even if you're unemployed, of course, it's very sad. But in a way, you can also have more time to spend with your loved ones. That's uh, that's very European or very Scandinavian of you. <laughs> spend more time with the family, save the earth. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. And I think a lot of people who have joined the group are people who are freelancers and who have already tried to get out of the whole corporate world and working for big companies and working all the time and never having time to do anything else. Now, we should mention that this group that uh, this woman is a member of has 4,484 members. Um, the group for the ad campaign, the Facebook group in support. So. I guess in support of spending and not saving. In support of spending and not saving has more than 22,000 members. I also want to say that point she makes, you don't need a recession, right? Like a recession is when you don't have a choice about whether to leave the corporate world or spend time with your family. You are forced during an economic growth period. Everyone can choose to spend time with their family or leave their corporate job, but you don't have to. Right. But there is a sense like when you I, I'm sort of sympathetic to what she's saying in that, like, when there's a boom period, everybody's it's you, you feel like you you feel like a sucker if you're not picking, taking part of it. Sort of, there is a psychological effect I think um, of like that is sort of it's sort of a relief not to have it be all about money all the time. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like if you're going to spend time with your kids just because you have to because you lost your job. And then you're like, but don't worry, kids. As soon as the economy picks up, I'm going to start hanging out with you all the time. I know. I know. I know. Anyway. Yeah. (laughs) I Um, think we'll we'll get into this some other time. Right. Exactly. That does it for us today. To see pictures of this ad campaign of the Dueling Pigs, visit our blog at npr.org slash money. And um, I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. I'm just an honest man. Provide for me and mine. I give a check to tax. Deductible charity organization